Some recent research has revealed that employees waste an average of $1,500 and an eight-hour workday for every crucial conversation they avoid. These costs skyrocket when multiplied by the prevalence of conflict avoidance. Now, this is, uh, the research was pre-COVID as well. According to the study conducted by the authors of the best-selling book, Crucial Conversations, 95% of a company's workforce struggles to speak up to their colleagues about their concerns. As a result, they engage in resource-sapping avoidance tactics, including ruminating excessively about crucial issues, complaining, getting angry, doing unnecessary work, and avoiding the other person altogether. In extreme cases of avoidance, the organization's bottom line is hit especially hard. The study of more than 600 people found out that, found that about 8% of employees estimate their avoidance cost their organization more than $10,000. And one in 20 estimate that over the course of a drawn out silent conflict, they waste time ruminating about the problem for more than six months. Joseph Grenny, who is author of Crucial Conversations, says it's time organizations stop viewing interpersonal competencies as soft skills and start teaching their people how to speak and deal directly with conflicts rather than avoiding them. Now, this must be especially hard at a time when people are not even working in the same place, but scattered about in their homes, meeting on Zoom. I mean, how can we hope to effectively deal with conflict in those situations? And this isn't just an issue in business, is it? Is it? No, it's not. Matthew, in his gospel, brings us the words of Jesus around resolving conflict in the church. And I think most Christians are even where it's located. I mean, you'll hear about a Matthew 18 moment, or somebody says, yeah, I think that's a Matthew 18 moment. And what they mean is it's about resolving conflict and disagreements. But I think this passage can be uh, largely misunderstood and rarely applied just like the study of the business context, in the church, we also avoid the necessary work of resolving conflict, of speaking truth and love, and we just bury it down deep. And in that place, it can fester and nurture resentment, anger, and disunity for the whole congregation. Now, I have been a part of the restoration of relationships in the church. Uh, that went sideways, and uh, being a part of restoring relationships is a wonderful thing. It requires honesty, directness, empathy, mercy, and love. People have come to me about things. Often they were things I was not aware of, and I have gone to others. I've been on both sides of that healing work. And when it happens, it's beautiful. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's joyful. It's full of life. And that gives life to the whole community then. But I've also experienced the breakdown of relationships, where reconciliation was not pursued or not allowed, and all contact was broken off. And in those situations, there is the taste of death. And it has ripples that reach out to others, breaking down connections and friendships and poisoning life in the whole community. This is why Jesus addresses it. And it's why we consider it today. Now, Matthew, in chapter 18, has actually given us five disciplines that have to do with healthy community, what one commentator has called discipleship training sessions. And for it to be vital and healthy and cohesive, 
These are not negotiable within our community. And I'm just going to list them through, and we're just looking at one of them today, and it's in Matthew chapter 18. The first is to cultivate childlike humility and to welcome children intentionally. This is in verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 18, where, where uh, you know, disciples need a picture of what it is to be in the kingdom of God, and he brings a little child and he puts the child in the midst of them. He says that's, that's what the kingdom of God is about. Also, we're to take great care in protecting the little ones. That's children are also those who are, are new to the faith, our brothers and our sisters. Thirdly, we're to treat those who stray with the care of a shepherd who loves his sheep. That's, this, that's that uh, parable he tells of the, of the one sheep that goes astray and he leaves the flock in order to pursue that one, that good shepherd. Fourth is that we're to make sustained attempts to resolve conflict in the community in ways that are redemptive and restorative. And that's our passage today. And then fifth is that we're to offer forgiveness that's relational and not transactional. And we're going to be looking at that next week. These are, these are really costly practices, aren't they? It's part of taking up our cross to follow Jesus. They involve surrender to God and love of our neighbor. They require something of us. They require us to listen and to care. You know, some of the things we were talking about last week in the larger context. And today we're looking at these practices within the local Christian community. In other words, within our community, among brothers and sisters. We will experience conflict. I think most of us in this room are old enough that we've had some of that. Uh, if not, we will. It's just a given. We're people. We're part of a fellowship of difference. We bring our uniqueness as gifts to the body of Christ. And, and that gift of diversity brings also with it a challenge in understanding. And Sometimes this flares up. It flares up between individuals sometimes between groups within a church over all manner of issues, and it's normal. The real test is what we do, how we respond when it occurs. How do we maintain the mind of Christ? How do we guard the gift of unity within the church? And so Jesus outlines a process. It's not perhaps everything that might be done, but it's good for us to consider it and, and look at it. it. Because the process, though, just... To be clear, it assumes mature and healthy members of the church seeking to walk together and honor God in their common life. This process of Matthew 18 is not applicable to situations where abuse has taken place or where it's alleged. In other words, we don't tell someone who's been abused to go in private to confront their abuser. And it has happened. I don't think that's what is meant here. We wouldn't expect or desire that. In those situations, we have other kinds of disciplinary processes uh, in place. Matthew 18 assumes some level of health and some level of equality. Unfortunately, it's sometimes been used inappropriately where there was not health or where there was a huge power differential. But in the kind of the run-of-mill disagreements and conflicts, the kind of things that you and I might get into a little bit sometimes, there's wisdom in the pathway of reconciliation that's laid out here in this passage. Let's look at it. First, if your brother or sister has wronged you, and I think that's really the emphasis here, uh, is because some of the uh, manuscripts say sinned against you, I think it is a personal thing in some way. If that's happened, then seek to settle it privately. Go first to that other person. 
It shows respect. It shows care. It shows love. Now, while I think this is, relates to personal grievance, I think there uh, is also a sense in which if, if someone is in, in, involved in sin, we have responsibility and care to, to, to go to them and to, to try to call them to a good place. But in that, in that case, particularly, we need to give real care to our own, our own frailties and our own temptations and to be humble about that. Matthew 18, I think, for the most part, is about something personal. And it's the person who is wronged who's encouraged to enter the process. In other words, the person is the victim. Jesus says, you go. You know, you're aware of it, so you go to that person. It's saying, I care enough about you to engage. I won't bury it, but I also won't shame you by telling others or posting my thoughts about it in a kind of slant critique on social media. We're to go to that person. If they're receptive, then great. You won them over. You, you, you know, you, you're, you're one again. Unity's been restored. Friendship has been protected. But if not, if they say, eh, no, I didn't hurt you, or I don't see what the big deal is, and if they brush it off, then you have to press in with several others. Now, you do have to choose your battles, don't, don't we? Some things don't warrant a major discussion. There may be times you just say, yeah, it's not that serious, I can let that go. Jesus didn't fight every accuser who came his way. When he was challenged about not paying taxes, he finally just sent the boys fishing and they came up with the money. Remember that? It wasn't a hill to die on for him. Not everything is a federal case, as they say. But there are times when unity is broken in a serious enough fashion that it requires being addressed. When real wrong has been done, when sin has entered the community and is eating away at its core. Then we have to say, do I love my brother or sister more than being right? Then we go to them. You know, the whole uh, tradition in Judaism required witnesses. That was very important. Because the synagogue, that was also a place where uh, disputes were settled. It was important for things to be properly established, and Jesus has brought that tradition of witnesses into his teaching. In our day of fame and shame culture, as Andy Crouch calls it, it's important for this to be honored. Because if not, people can be judged in the public, in social media, before anything is really known. All that is needed is an accusation, and it's over. Love and respect in the community requires us to go to people directly and when needed, to take others along to witness to the truth. If that does not yield a resolution, then the issue is brought to the whole church. If that is fruitless, then the person, it says, is to be treated as an outsider to the community, a pagan, a tax collector. Here's where I think we also misinterpret this passage. Because the goal of this process at each step is restoration. It's the restoring of unity. It's for the person to be fully engaged and vibrant in the community once again. This is not a checklist toward excommunication. In fact, if someone is treated as an outsider, what does that mean? I think it means we double our efforts to reach them in the love of Christ. Not to shun them. We're wanting their place in the community to be renewed and restored. 
We know this because the verses that follow are about forgiveness. And we'll look at those next week. This is the whole point of Jesus' declarations on binding and loosing. A little confusing, isn't it? It's a little, it's, it's kind of, it's hard to know, really. What, what are you talking about? I think it's that what we agree together in the Christian community on earth is done in heaven. It's a reflection of something that's eternal. Our response in the midst of conflict has consequences. It rings, it resonates, it has cosmic implications. So we best be careful, Jesus is saying, and prayerful about how we go about resolving conflicts. Because what is bound and what is loosed is done. If we ask for unity and we pursue it in godly ways, we can have it if we are all willing. This is the heart and the desire of the Father. If our peace is broken, yet we come together and we agree, and together we ask for that unity to restore, be restored, it will be done. If you and I get uh, sideways, if we have an argument, disagreement, if we come together and we air that, and we come to an understanding and we pray, that's what God desires. That's why you know, we're, we're pulling together, we're binding that thing that is then bound in heaven. We're participating in the work of the kingdom of God in that way. This final verse here, verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. I think we, we often remove that verse out of its context here. And of course, I do believe it's true in, in whatever situation, when two or three gather in the Lord's name, he's present. But often we've forgotten that the promise is related to the resolving of conflict. Because <laughs> Jesus is talking about healing, reconciling in the church. His presence is with us for unity, for the coming together of God's people, for reconciliation. It's blessed, holy, and true work. Maybe the two or three are even the witnesses, the one who's been wrong, the one who wrongs. I mean, I don't know, but that could be a picture of that, of healing taking place and Jesus saying, see, I'm with you. I'm with you in there for sure. Sadly, we don't often get to walk this process of healing. People get sideways, bent out of shape with each other, angry at the pastor or maybe another leader for something, and they just leave. I think we know that. We've, we've experienced that. And so it... it you know, things settle down because that person has just left. But the absence of conflict is not the presence of peace. The absence of conflict is not the presence of shalom, wholeness that God desires. Peace comes as a promised gift of God's presence as we walk together, as we press in, as we listen and share in honesty and seek to make things right in love. Now, sometimes I think it's determined or discerned that we do need to go different directions. But that's after a process of reconciliation, not as a way to circumvent it. What do these three passages, uh, we'll take the psalm out, but the other three passages here, what, what do they share in common? Not that we always have to find some common theme, but as I was reflecting on it, I think there is something in, in each of them it's not just here, it's throughout Scripture, but we see it really clearly here. And to me, the common theme is this. 
You are God's people. You are set apart. You are peculiar people. You are those purchased with a price. And the way that you go about your lives is not the way people in the world go about their lives. There's an ethic that requires of us love and care. I mean, as the people are waiting and that pass overnight and their doors are marked and they're ready to go, they know they are different than the Egyptians around them. Paul, in his addressing the church in Rome, is, is seeking to bring them together in unity, a, a place of peace in the midst of a, a very violent empire. He's saying, you can't, you can't sort your things out the way they do outside the church walls. You have a way to live, and this is the way it is. And in, this is what we see in Matthew, too. Jesus is saying, no, 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 this, this is the rule of love. This is what it requires of us. It's costly. And as kingdom people, we don't have the wisdom of the world. In fact, Paul says at one point, it's foolishness to the world. We have different ways of thinking about what's going on. And we have different ways of doing it within the power of the Spirit. I began with an observation from the contemporary workplace, and I'd like to conclude with something from the ancient church, just to sort of Set, us, set this uh, in place today. Tachomius was an Egyptian soldier who was won to Christ by the kindness of Christians in Thebes. And after his release from the military around 315 AD, he was baptized. Now, Tachomius was serious about his new faith and determined to grow, so he did what many did in that time, and that is he became a hermit, ascetic, Self-denial, solitary life. And throughout portions of the uh, Christian history, the model of devotion was the recluse who's dedicated to resisting the corruption of society. So these hermits uh, wandered the often. They were alone. They fasted. They prayed. They had visions. Many went to extremes. And this was the popular image of holiness. Solitude, silence, and severity. And this was Pacomius' early spiritual training. But somewhere along the way, he began to question the method and the lifestyle of his mentors. He questioned this. He said, how can you learn to love if no one else is around? How can you learn humility living alone? How can you learn kindness or gentleness or goodness in isolation? How can you learn patience unless someone puts yours to the test? In short, he concluded, developing spiritual fruit requires being around people, ordinary, ordinary people. To save souls, he said, you must bring them together. God's love is best learned when we can't be selective about our associates. I mean, think about the two institutions that God has established, the family and the church. We don't choose who's in our family. We don't choose who's in our church. We learn agape love most effectively in our involuntary associations, away from the temptation of choosing to love only the attractive. So Pacomius began a community where holiness was developed not in isolation, but together. Each person sought God together a common life based on worship, work, and discipline. And this became, this became the, the groundwork for the monastic 
tradition. Now, Pacomius, while largely forgotten in church history, you've probably never heard his name before, points out to us that as attractive as solitary sanctification may seem, it's actually our life among people and the busyness and the interruptions and the difference that develop many of the qualities that God wants to place in us. In this time of pandemic, we are isolated, some more than others. We're hermits, <laughs> or at least we have some of that part of our life. We don't have the usual social interaction that's common to human experience and common to the church. So in many cases, we're not developing and practicing the discipline of healing divisions. And in fact, I suspect that the current environment in our society is creating division. I want to urge us to use all means possible to reach out in love to one another, especially where we may suspect that relationships that we have in the body of Christ with our brothers and sisters may be suffering. Now, there'll be plenty of work when we return, you know. We don't know when that'll be. But some of that can be done now. A phone call, a card, a letter, remember those? A socially distanced cup of coffee. Because when we do that, the life of Jesus is with us. Amen.